mindfulness mode. If we have a lot of stored emotional pain, then our subconscious is living in that. And then we start pleasure seeking to equilibrate for the pain. Hey, Mindful Tribe, we have talked about attachment theory quite a bit here on the show. And today is another day that we're going to talk about attachment theory. And it's such an important topic. That's at least one of the topics that we'll be touching on. And I'm just so thrilled today because I have the guest to talk about this. She is so knowledgeable and so willing to share everything she does know. I have with us here today, Thais Gibson. Thais, are you in mindfulness mode today? Yes, I am. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for having me. And I'm so excited to have you here and to have you here because I know that you're so willing to share your knowledge because I've learned a lot about attachment theory from your videos on YouTube. And it's a wonderful opportunity to go on and, and learn more. But first of all, what does mindfulness mean to you, Thais? Well, for me, I would say mindfulness has been a really personal journey that I've been on. And mindfulness to me, I mean, the first word that comes up for me is actually emotional regulation. And mindfulness was an entry point for me into being able to better understand and witness my thoughts, my emotions, and not be so identified with them all the time. And through doing that, I was able to really start reprogramming and transforming patterns at the thought and emotional level that were no longer serving me. really from like my subconscious upwards. And so mindfulness has a really special place in my life and my heart. And I meditate twice a day, every day. And and I practice mindfulness when I'm doing the dishes or any household activities or waiting in line. So I think there's a really beautiful overlap between mindfulness and psychology. Well, I certainly agree. And Thais, I want to share a bit more about you with our audience. Thais Gibson is well-known for her research and teachings on attachment theory and how it impacts limiting beliefs, emotional patterns, and subsequently romantic relationships. And so she has, as I already mentioned, I think I mentioned it, she started what is called personaldevelopmentschool.com. And that's a place where you can go to learn so much about attachment theory. It's an online learning platform enabling users to create long lasting change in every area of your life. And another thing I was going to mention is that Thais overcame addiction issues in her early years. And as a result, she's determined to educate exactly how the mind can be reprogrammed. So it's not an easy task to reprogram the mind, is it? Where do we start, Thais? You know, I think it's such a powerful question you're asking. And I think, you know, one of the things that I found as a person in in sort of the Western healthcare model, there's so many beautiful, wonderful things about our Western healthcare system. But there's also, you know, especially in the psychological arenas, often a lot of, you know, therapeutic techniques deal with the conscious mind specifically. And we can't outwill or overpower the subconscious mind with our conscious mind, which means, you know, we can often find ourselves sort of hitting these walls in what we're trying to create. Or, or having new habits in our lives, or, you know, for myself personally, a huge wall that I felt was really not wanting to be an addict and really wanting to get sober and live a normal life and just feeling like as much as I wanted that at a conscious level, my subconscious just kept going back towards these patterns. And before I understood the difference between the conscious and subconscious mind, I experienced that as a war within myself. 
And I feel like everybody sort of had that to a certain degree. Maybe they want to go to the gym or eat healthier and they've got that war within themselves. Or maybe it's, you know, something they want to be more productive or, or stop self-sabotaging their relationships. And they keep sort of falling back into those same ruts or those same patterns. And usually what that's a reflection of is that our conscious mind has one intention and our subconscious mind, which always basically wins in the end, has a different set of rules that it's playing by. I want to ask you, back when you had those addiction issues, had you already studied attachment theory or did that come later? That came much later. So for me, I actually became an addict at 14 years old. I was just turning 15. It was after knee surgery. I was an athlete and and was trying to get a soccer scholarship to go away to school. And um, I just, I think because of some early subconsciously stored traumas I had and some unresolved emotional issues, just from, you know, basically related to attachment trauma big time, I got addicted to my painkillers. I just, I really liked the feeling. I felt like they made me feel normal and like I could you know, handle life better. And and then I had somebody come along soon after and say that they're a performance enhancer. And, you know, it's a good thing. It's a very long story, but basically the same person ended up selling them to me. And, and, you know, I was a kid, I didn't really know what was going on, but I knew that life sort of became easier. And I spent a lot of time very, you know, at a very early age being like, I can't live like this. Like this is, it was very painful. And, and, you know, I would say if you've ever really experienced addiction, it's one of few things that I think can really like, it's just very tormenting. It's, it's just like you're battling yourself and it just feels like you lose and you lose. And so I went the whole Western healthcare model way. I tried inpatient rehab, outpatient rehab, therapy, AA meetings, all these different things. And it wasn't until somebody by the grace of God came into my life and, and, really helped me from a spiritual perspective, honestly, and also taught me a little bit about the subconscious mind. I realized like, oh my goodness, this makes so much sense. The things they're saying that war within myself is the war between my conscious and subconscious. And I just became so hungry to learn and to get answers. And all these answers were just pointing me in the right direction and the right direction. And I just, I feel like I had a a series of just sort of synchronistic experiences that really led me on a, a journey And through that, I ended up going, you know, finishing uh, school, going back, doing a master's program in transpersonal psychology, and then over 13 different certifications in like CBT, NLP, hypnosis, like you name it. Um, Maybe got a little bit addicted to learning about this stuff for a little bit there, but really dove in and learned the principles of how the mind works and, and the roadmap. And I feel like anybody, if they really have that knowledge and that understanding, and the awareness of how to reprogram what's not working for you, it's actually really hard to stay stuck in our pain and our problems. But the problem in the first place is that so many people aren't given this knowledge. We're not you know, taught these really important principles at an early age. So we play the game of life with sometimes you know, only half the set of rules or a quarter of the set of rules of how it affects us and what's going on inside of us. And so yeah, I sort of went on this mission afterwards yeah. to like, I'm going to share this with as many people as possible because wow. people deserve to know this. So how long had you been addicted? And did you just come to that point where you were no longer addicted or did you keep falling back into the same trap? It's a beautiful question. So my experience was sort of like this. From 14 to about 20, I was really struggling. So about six years, really struggling, swallowed by addiction. I was, you know, high performing to a certain degree and able to sort of get through, but I ended up even leaving university. I was in a a D1 scholarship program for soccer and playing. And then, you know, there were some 
some challenges, you know, missing practice a lot, like just different things that were going on. And I was struggling to like do life. I ended up leaving school and then re-entering school about a year later at a point. And depending a rock bottom in sort of different areas of my life. And when I hit a real, real rock bottom there, I think I was 21 years old. And that's when I was like, I actually remember being like, God, if you exist, <laughs> I will do anything. Like I am ready. And it was actually soon after that, that somebody really powerful as a mentor entered into my life and, and started sort of helping me look at things differently and just seemed to have answers that I really needed. So then from that point onwards for the next few years, I sort of did a very deep dive into understanding these things, finishing school, going through a different program. And then I was having a lot of profound changes and shifts. For me, I got off painkillers very quickly and was able to transform that relationship. But I still had like, you know, a bit of an unhealthy relationship to alcohol. And I can remember, I was probably 22 years old and I can remember maybe 21 still. And, you know, I was living in the US at the time and they sell alcohol at gas stations there. And, and I remember I would buy a bottle of wine and I couldn't not finish the entire bottle of wine once I opened it just on like, you know, a Tuesday evening. And it's, it's not horrible, but for me, it was like, why? Like I still had that battle. And what I realized it was so powerful is that anything you fight, you feed. And this is truly the case because our subconscious mind can't really tell the difference between like the word no or not. It doesn't really speak through language. It speaks more through emotions and through symbols. So when you sit there and you're like, I'm not going to drink the wine, I'm not going to finish the wine. Your subconscious is like wine, wine. And, and sometimes you'll hear, you know, a good example of this is if I say to you, don't think of the pink elephant, like pink elephant is in your mind. Right. And so anything we, we say, don't eat that bad food. Don't eat those cookies. Don't eat, you know, whatever it is, we're actually feeding. And so when I learned to, to do two things, this really was the last straw that like changed addiction for me altogether was I learned to say, I'm going to be healthy. You know, I'm going to release my relationship to this addiction. I'm going to, and I started framing things in the positive in my internal dialogue to self. And the other really profound thing, which I think is an important counterpart of healing for every single person, irrespective of what you're trying to heal or transform in your life is you cannot beat yourself up. Right. When we beat ourselves up and we go, what's wrong with you that you drank all that wine? What, why did you have to have that second glass? You're doing it again. As soon as we do that, we elicit emotional patterns that are negative. And then we need a behavioral coping mechanism to deal with the way that we feel. It's so easy to feel like a victim and yes. to face the fact that, hey, you're having this problem. You have to face that fact. But how do you, how do you, you know, realize that you're a victim without falling into that victim trap? Yes. And one of the other really important things is that the issue isn't the issue. So the wine is not the issue. The substances are not the issue. What the real issue is, is because we see people who go into surgeries and are on morphine drips or whatever, and they come out, they're not addicted to painkillers right after. What's actually happening is that our, sub, our subconscious mind stores everything and it stores all of our memories with all of the emotions attached to them. And it consolidates these memories over time and things like that. But if we have a lot of stored emotional pain, then our subconscious is living in that. And then we start pleasure seeking to equilibrate for the pain because our brain has a homeostatic impulse. It wants balance. It wants equilibrium. So the more stored subconscious pain we have, the more we will start pleasure seeking or escaping or doing counterproductive things for ourselves. And so 
to not feel like the victim. What we actually have to do is realize if we are in pain and if we're telling a victim story, or if we are feeding into that, number one, we have to start transforming that and being gentle in the relationship to ourselves. So we're not refeeding the cycle and speak to ourselves and change our internal dialogue to exercise compassion and gentleness and understanding and inquiry instead of judgment and shaming. And we also have to be able to recognize, okay, what are these underlying painful experiences that I'm carrying and how can I start isolating them and going in and reprogramming or cleaning them up so that I'm relieving this stuff from my own subconscious. And now I don't have to equilibrate or compensate for what's going on on a daily you know, basis because our subconscious mind is like the filter we experience reality through. So it, it looks like a lot of the people that follow your videos are having trouble with relationships. Would it be that the majority of them are trying to learn about relationships and relationship challenges through your work? Yes, I would say a lot of people come from a space of attachment trauma and our attachment styles, attachment traumas impact our relationships so much. And because relationships are such an important part of our lives, of course, but I would say there's also seven areas of life. So we've got our career, our financial space, our mental, emotional, mental, emotional, our spiritual, our physical, and then we have our relationships being friends, family, and, um, and romantic partners. And it's, you know, anything can show up in any one of those areas. We can carry subconscious trauma at any one of those spaces. And as long as we don't work those things out, we are constantly in a state of reprojecting. So let's say, for example, that I'm a child and let's say, you know, you talk a lot on your show about bullying and share some really powerful messages there. You know, let's say that I'm a child and I'm on the playground and I get bullied and I'm in second grade. The brain to try to make sense of it painful experiences gives meaning to things. So I might make that mean that I'm not good enough. I'm disliked. I'm excluded. People can't be trusted. And then what happens is the brain really focuses on those experiences because it's like trying to hyperfeed those things so that it can prevent them from happening again. So then I go, you know, the next day back to school or to a new school a year later, and my brain's like, Oh, people don't like you. You're not good enough. And it keeps retelling the same stories. And then what we know is belief patterns, those beliefs, I'm not good enough. I, people can't be trusted. Beliefs produce more patterns of thought. So if I have a belief, I'm not good enough. I start thinking I'm not smart enough. I'm not cool enough. I'm not clever enough. I'm not good looking enough. Then those thought patterns produce emotional reactions. Okay. How do you feel when you think those things insecure, afraid, and then those emotions are made up of neurochemicals. And so therein lies, you know, what some people experience is a, a chemical imbalance uh, over time. We're not born with depression or anxiety as children, but if we go through enough painful imprints through our experiences and create enough painful pieces of meaning out of it, the mind is constantly rerunning those patterns of belief, thoughts, emotions. And then neuroscience has proven every single decision we make is based on our emotions. Even people who think they're very logical decision makers they're making emotionally based decisions at the tipping point, And then they're just quick to rationalize or justify through logic. So if we have painful relationship experiences young, absolutely. You're on a track towards, you know, rerunning those things and replaying these stories and having pain there. But it can also be if you had, you know, your family had a financial crisis as a child, or if you, you know, saw something at any point in your life where there was a major career change, you know, maybe in your adult life, you got fired from your dream job. Anytime we, we have imprints emotionally and we don't repattern or reprogram them, it's pain waiting to come back up in a different form. 
I see. Well, let's talk about jealousy. You talked about jealousy on a recent video you did, and jealousy can certainly bubble up as a result of attachment issues, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I would say, you know, jealousy to a a very strong degree, especially especially for different attachment styles, specifically more so fearful avoidant attachment and anxious preoccupied attachment styles. Jealousy is a trauma response. Jealousy is the result of having, you know, what trauma is, if we're defining it, is trauma is basically anything that you couldn't properly emotionally process so that you didn't store it at a subconscious level as a painful memory instead. And if you couldn't process, let's say you're a child and let's say you have a fear of abandonment because your parents are inconsistent in how they show up. If you couldn't process that and make peace with it and understand like, no, I'm safe. Everything's going to be okay. I'm not going to be abandoned. They're just busy or they can't always be here. If you couldn't give it healthy meaning, then instead your subconscious stored it as I'm going to be abandoned at any time, or I'm not good enough. And that's why they're inconsistent or something's wrong with me. And then that painful imprint is basically, it becomes something that your brain recycles on autopilot all the time. And we think roughly 60 to 70,000 thoughts per day and roughly 50,000 of them are repeated thoughts from the day before. And this was a study done at the California, at USC at the Neuroimaging Institute. And, you know, so a lot of these painful belief patterns we pick up because of painful experiences are producing these thoughts, producing these emotions. And if we have these, then imagine, you know, in your adult life when you have a relationship, but inside of you, you believe that you're going to be abandoned at any time, or you believe that the person, you know, might think you're not good enough. Well, of course, when somebody's flirting with your partner, when somebody's, you know, in a dynamic, you're going to have all these really painful imprints come up that have just been stored at the subconscious level this entire time. And, and somebody might be like, oh, you're being jealous. You're being silly. Well, you're having a trauma response in that moment. And so it's super important to be able to become aware of that and then work to repattern those stories you have about yourself at the subconscious level in the first place. So you deal with things at the root level, and then those things can start falling away at the surface symptomatic level. Wow. And there's so much to be learned at the personal development school dot com has so much to be learned, I know. But I want to talk to you about the present situation we're going through with the pandemic. What are some of the challenges that are coming up right now with people? Yeah, so a lot of the challenges, there's two ways we suffer emotionally. Okay. Only ever two ways, everything's rooted in these two things the belief and thought patterns that are circulating. So some of what we're talking about, I'm bullied as a child. I believe I'm not good enough. Now I'm recirculating that story on autopilot my whole life until I work to reprogram it. And the other thing that causes suffering is unmet needs. So for example, like, you know, we have six basic human needs. They are certainty, uncertainty, significance, contribution, love and connection and growth. And anytime we have one of those needs unmet, the brain elicits a bit of a negative emotional response and it's beautiful. It's a feedback mechanism to help us grow and evolve. If we didn't have that happening, we would all just flatline and stagnate. But what happens is pain is when needs are unmet. Suffering is when we give meaning to that experience. Suffering is the story we tell around the unmet needs. So for example, love and connection isn't something let's pretend, you know, really prevalent in my life. I'm going to have some pain. And that pain is asking me to go build relationships, connect with people, communicate more honestly and vulnerably. But if I make that mean, well, it's because nobody likes me and I'm unlikable and I'm a terrible person and you know, I'm not interesting. I'm not good enough. Then I have emotional suffering. And so 
in the the sort of landscape of what we're experiencing today, a lot of what's happening is there's so many unmet needs because of the, the state of the environment. And that's going to create pain. And so that pain is asking us what we can do is when we have unmet needs, if we can't meet our needs in a traditional form, we can update the, we, the way we choose to get needs met. So let's say, for example, connection is definitely going to be something that's less met because we're in a form of, you know, we're in quarantine and isolation. But if we just stay there, then what the mind does is it just starts storytelling around that. It goes, I'm helpless. I can't do anything about this. This is going to last forever. All these bad things are going to happen. So we have to target both of those things. We have to change our story, change our thinking about the experience. Like, you know what? hopefully I can take something away from this. What can I do to learn and grow in this experience? We have to shift our, our, the way we perceive it. And then we also have to come up with creative updated strategies to get those needs met. So for example, maybe I can't connect face-to-face. I better start having more vulnerable conversations with people over the phone. I better start sharing more personal things and opening up more and, and, you know, having zoom calls with people and, and doing things that are actually going to open that connection space. So even though it's not happening in the way I know, at least my conscious mind can create an updated strategy and still get those needs met for my subconscious. So I'm dealing with the pain and then I'm less likely to storytell around the pain and make it mean something painful about me, which is also going to take care of the suffering. And a lot of people are trying to get their needs met through social media. Isn't that right? And that causes problems in itself. Let's talk about that. Yes, it's a beautiful point that you raised. So that can sometimes be a subconscious strategy to get the need met for significance. But the rule, and and I talk about this in one of our courses big time, is the rule is that we experience more friction in our lives when we are picking indirect ways of getting our needs met. So let's say, for example, that you want more love and connection in your life, okay? Or Bob wants more love and connection in his life. We'll say, you know, a fictional character. And let's say that Bob is going to get love and connection and he's in a time of quarantine or isolation. And so he's like, you know what? I'm going to get it through social media and through television programs where, you know, reality TV, where I feel emotionally connected to the characters and the brain does this. It actually gets needs that every single thing the brain does is a subconscious strategy to get a specific need met. So let's say he's doing that. You can imagine that that's like a bucket. And if your need is this bucket waiting to be filled and you need it filled to have a still mind, to feel peaceful, to feel calm, to feel open and receptive and in the best version of yourself, it's like you open the faucet and you're only letting it drip into the bucket because you're only going to get so much of your needs met from social media, from television. But let's say instead you're like, I'm going to have a really vulnerable, deep conversation with an old friend. I'm going to open up. I'm going to share some stuff, you know, be really present. It's like you went to, to a faucet and really opened it and it, it really filled the the bucket up. And so we can waste a lot of time with these very indirect ways of getting our needs met. And it actually causes long-term stress for us because we have this need, we're waiting for it. And it's like, you can imagine you're trying to breathe air through a straw. It's like you can only get so much in there at a time. And so social media might be an easy strategy for the brain, which always wants the fastest strategy, not necessarily the best strategy, but that's where it's our subconscious doing that. And it's our conscious mind's duty to be able to go, okay, what's the best strategy? What's the most effective strategy I can use to get these needs met and consciously create action steps to get that need met for your subconscious. So again, it's like you open the faucet fully and you get the opportunity to really meet that need because you came up with a healthier strategy at the conscious level. 
Right. I want to talk about the topic of bullying. You already mentioned that, yes, that's a topic that I like to touch on because I've worked in that field for over 10 years. Can you tell us how this can affect someone who has been bullied? How can attachment Uh, theory affect that person? And how can practicing mindfulness help to deal with it? Absolutely. So, one of the most beautiful things that mindfulness does is it helps us to become aware of what's running beneath the surface. And if we can practice mindfulness in the context of observing our, the contents of our own mind, what that usually is, is it's observing the contents of our subconscious programming. So let's say you've been bullied and let's say what's going to happen. What are some really common imprints? Well, what we'll likely see from people that are bullied. And I've seen this many times in my practice is people make it mean I'm not good enough. People can't be trusted. I'm excluded. I don't belong. I'm alone. I'm abandoned. These sorts of things. And now these beliefs, I like to think of these belief imprints as like a tree trunk. And off of that tree trunk come all of these tree branches. And so when we have these beliefs about ourselves and at the subconscious level, this is the story we've created about who we are because of pain, because of trauma, then we go through life and these, these, that tree trunk produces all of these tree branches of thought. So we walk into a room full of people and we're like, this person's going to be mean to me. This person's going to judge me. They're going to think I'm not very good. They're going to think this thing about me there. Look, I can see the way they're looking at me. I'm unsafe. And we have all of these thoughts that come off of that tree trunk of belief patterns. And then we emote accordingly and we create neurochemicals accordingly. So When we want to change these things, the first step is becoming aware of them because these things are running on autopilot and and they're affecting us so much. These are, you know, such prevalent features of our lives. So what we can do is we can start disidentifying in a mindful form from from our emotions and start using them as what they are actually for. See, we have this idea that our emotions are like this painful thing, you know, oh, it sucks to feel sad. I'm feeling sad today. What an awful day. Our emotions are feedback. There are guides, there are messengers, and they're always letting us know when something is out of alignment. And they're letting us know when either we have needs that are unmet that's out of alignment, or when we have painful stories that we're telling ourselves. And instead of buying into our emotions and acting through them and reacting to them, what we can do is develop a mindful relationship to our emotions themselves by observing them. And when we can start feeling negative emotions come up, and instead of you know, acting through them. Like, let's say you feel angry and you yell instead of that, if we can observe and go, Oh my gosh, what is this anger? Where do I feel it in my body? What is it communicating to me? And we can observe, we are able to then trace it inwards and backwards and go, what thoughts have I just been thinking? Or what stories have I just been telling myself that this anger is waking me up to, or the sadness is waking me up to. And how can I either change that story or meet needs that might be unmet in my life. And if we can practice having a mindful relationship to our emotions and to our thoughts, it's the first step to producing tremendous change. Wow. Yes. Well, you know, I have to tell you, you share so much on that YouTube channel and that is wonderful. And is the YouTube channel called Personal Development School or does it have a different name? Yes. It's Personal Development School dash Thais Gibson. Oh, dash Thais Gibson. And that's T H. A-I-S 
She's Thais and Gibson, G-I-B-S-O-N. Okay, yeah, check it out on YouTube, Mindful Tribe, because it's a wonderful channel. Now, as we move forward in the interview, Thais, I want to ask you five quick answer questions. And so just 30 second answers are perfect. The first one is this. Who is one person who has influenced mindfulness in your life? I would absolutely say it's funny because we were chatting about this. I would say Eckhart Tolle and not in like the traditional way. I know we have like John Kabat-Zinn and all these wonderful teachers and I've read many of their books, but, but I would say Eckhart Tolle and the, the perspective that it was, you know, a lot of his teachings are about disidentification and being present and observing your own mind. And, and that was a huge piece that led me to start understanding my own patterns and then combining that with the subconscious. It was like, Oh, I can reprogram these things now once I had my my hands on those tools. So absolutely, I would say Eckhart Tolle from that perspective. So how has mindfulness affected your emotions? Mindfulness has helped me understand my emotions and become fully present. So I often say to people that, you know, we think that it's not good to, it's a form of dissociation to disidentify, but it's the exact opposite. When we disidentify, when we fall behind our emotions and we observe them instead of identify with them and get wrapped up in them, it's the first time we're being fully present with ourselves. And what we often do is we go, Oh, I feel negative emotions. Let me binge watch TV. Let me eat food. Let me do all these things. And we're trying to escape ourselves through those things. But when we start to observe, it would be no different than if I come to your house and I'm like, and you're having a bad day and I'm fully present. And I'm like, Oh, I see that you're upset. Are you okay? Why are you feeling this way? And I ask questions. You'll feel my presence, my care, my compassion. So when we can observe our own emotions and be present with ourselves and ask questions and inquire, we're using our emotions as what they are actually designed. Tell us how breathing is part of your mindfulness practice. Breathing is so important for me personally, because it's grounding. I have an amazing business partner at the personal development school. He's actually a breathwork coach and and teacher. And um, his name is Giovanni Bartolomeo. And, you know, in meditation for myself, it's the first step to grounding. And it's something I do when I'm waiting in line. It's something I do if I'm in an elevator somewhere, anything like that, because it's really getting you back inside of your body when you pay attention to the breath. And it really gets you present and connected to self. If you could recommend a book related to mindfulness, what book would that be? Oh my gosh. (laughs) My first heart's answer, (laughs) honestly, are not your typical mindfulness books. Although I've read many of John Kabat-Zinn's books and they're fantastic. But I would say either Eckhart Tolle, A New Earth, because he talks about the pain body and witnessing and, and it's really powerful from that perspective. And another one of my favorite books is Michael Singer's the surrender experiment and Michael Singer's the untethered soul. The surrender experiment is fantastic too, but the untethered soul, it has this very like mindfulness based undertone because it's teaching you to become aware of your internal dialogue and disidentify and observe your thinking. And I think once we get really clear on those two parts, one of the big things that reprograms the subconscious mind is just repetition plus emotion. So when we start to become hyper aware of our emotions, hyper aware of our thoughts, and we see what's not serving us and, and what is taking up real estate in our mind that's just outdated, we can start changing those patterns and creating new patterns intentionally and consciously. And over time, that totally reprograms the entire subconscious landscape. Right. Can you share an app which can help with mindfulness? Yes. An app that I use that I think is quite popular, but I'm a big fan of is Headspace. And Headspace is a meditation and mindfulness app. There are both mindfulness meditations in there and then different types of, you know, like Vipassana based meditations and all different types in there. So it's a wonderful app. 
Right. Well, it's been wonderful to talk with you about these attachment issues and and to learn about personal development school. When did you decide to create the personal development school? So I basically started my practice years and years ago. And, and then that just filled up very quickly and got very busy and overflowing. And so it was the goal, just teach classes for people I can't see. And then people were like, this should be taught in school and, you know, you should have a whole school. So I started the personal development school in person and then met my business partner just a year and a half ago to talk about these things. He was a friend from before and he's like, you should be doing this online. So it really just came over the last year and a half, but it's based on many years prior to that of classes and workshops and teaching. So we have 30 different courses in there right now. We had two every month and over 70 webinar courses, just about all these different topics and your subconscious and reprogramming and all these really wonderful concepts in general. So how does this work? Are there different levels of getting connected, different levels of payment or how does it work? Yes. So basically we try to make it really affordable to people. It's very close to my heart. I really want people to have access to this information. So we have a membership that's $67 a month and you basically get access to everything. So I do three live webinars a week with people to answer their personal questions. Um, And they're about an hour and a half to two hours long. And then, so we have these three sort of courses per week that are live. And then I'll pick like a specific topic people request. So like rebuilding trust, releasing resentment, all these different things. And then we have 30 pre-recorded courses. We add two new ones every month. They're all professionally done. And there's all the stock footage and everything added in there. And then we have a members lounge where people can ask questions. We have workbooks that come with every single course, all those different things. So it's really designed to give you the tools and the support to be able to break through and reprogram the very specific areas of your life that you're looking to fix. And a big portion of our content is related to either emotional regulation, depression, anxiety, or also attachment theory and reprogramming your attachment style at the subconscious level. And then we also have single course purchases you can you can buy just if you want to focus on one specific area. Um, and we also have bundles. So like your attachment style bundle, you know, the emotional regulation reprogramming for core wounds, painful belief patterns and unmet needs um, for the anxious preoccupied, for example, or the fearful avoidant. So we have it sort of separated. So it's available for whatever you want to focus on. So a lot of flexibility. That's yes. great. Yeah, that's yeah. great. Well, Mindful Tribe, it's personaldevelopmentschool.com. Thais has made a special arrangement with us here at Mindfulness Mode, and she's created a coupon code so that if you decide to sign up for anything at the Personal Development School and you use this coupon code, you can get 25% off at checkout. And the coupon code is BRUCE25, simply B-R-U-C-E. 25. So go check out the website at personaldevelopmentschool.com and use that coupon code BRUCE25 to receive 25% off. This is an affiliate link, so I will receive a small payment if you decide to purchase something using this coupon code. So thanks for that, Thais. And uh, Thais, I want to thank you so much for being here on the interview. It's just been fascinating. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me and for the beautiful work that you're also doing in the world. My pleasure. Bye now. Mindful Tribe, I hope you enjoyed today's interview. If you did, please tell your friends about the show. Every person who subscribes and listens helps our show. So in the meantime, take what you heard today and reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness. Stay in the mode.